morning from the letter, second letter to the Corinthians, chapter 5, beginning in verse 16. From now on, therefore, we regard no one from a human point of view. Even though we once knew Christ from a human point of view, we know him no longer in that way. So if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting the message of reconciliation to us. So we are ambassadors for Christ, since God is making his appeal through us. We entreat you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. This is the word of God for the people of God. Well, this may be one of the most difficult passages in all of Scripture. Did you hear what Paul proclaimed about who we are as followers of Christ in that very first verse we read, verse 16? Paul says, from now on, therefore, we regard no one from a human point of view. But, of course, that is what we do. We regard people based on human characteristics from a human point of view. We know from the latest brain research that, in fact, our brains make snap judgments about others based on physical characteristics before our conscious brain even knows it has happened. So this is a difficult passage. I don't think that Paul is saying that we can change our brain structure or our brain chemicals, but Paul is offering us a challenge to move beyond our judgments, our stereotypes, and our prejudice. And yet that too is pretty challenging. Most of us want to treat other people right and just, and yet we know we sort people out in our own minds. By the way they dress, the way they wear their hair, what color their skin is, maybe if they have tattoos or not. We make judgments all of the time as we walk through our lives. So it's challenging to hear what Paul says is to be the truth about those of us who claim to be followers of Christ. I don't think that Paul is suggesting that Becoming a Christian changes our brain chemistry, but I think he is trying to give us a theological answer to our dilemma about what we do with our prejudice and what sometimes then ends up in unjust or prejudicial behavior toward others. There's three parts here in this passage in Paul's answer. The first part of Paul's answer says that since we once understood Jesus one way and now we understand him in a different way, that gives us a model, if you will. So if we have treated others poorly before, we can treat them better in the future. 
We can change the way we behave, Paul is saying. You can hear it in that first verse. From now on, therefore, we regard no one from a human point of view, even though we once knew Christ from a human point of view. We know Him no longer in that way. Christ can be the model. Now, we should realize that this is Paul's own story. You'll remember probably that Paul was a zealous Pharisee, a Jew. He didn't think that those who were following Christ and believing that God had done something in terms of special revelation through Jesus were right. And because he was so zealous and believing they were wrong, he wanted to stop the wrong proclamation. So he got authority, got permission from the religious and legal authorities to look for these who were Christ followers and shut them up, if you will, to arrest them, to bring them to justice in a sense. But then Paul had this life-changing experience. And all of a sudden, instead of being the chief persecutor of Christians, he becomes the chief proclaimer of those who would follow Christ and all around the Mediterranean world. Paul is telling anybody and everyone who will listen that God has done something remarkable through this Jesus of Nazareth and opened the door for all of us to experience the love of God and therefore to be changed from the inside out. So it might be important to reflect on your own life, to think, how have you been changed because you are a follower of Christ? Has anything changed in you? Do you sense that God is working in you to shape and form you? Can you think of a time, perhaps, where your initial negative assessment of someone proved to be wrong? For this question, can you believe that God can and does change people that leads us to the second part of paul's answer we find it in verse 17 he writes so if anyone is in christ there is a new creation everything old has passed away see everything has become new paul is seeing that god did a mighty work in jesus and his logic is, therefore, God can do a mighty work in other humans. And of course, again, this is Paul's own story. He was one way, and he encountered God in Christ in a fresh way, and it changed the trajectory and the tenor of the rest of his life. Paul is saying when you connect with God, it begins to change who you are when you recognize that God is at work in the world and in your life for good, that God loves you in Christ. It begins to change who you are. And as you open yourselves ever more to the influence of God's Spirit at work in your life, Paul says, of course, it's making everything new, that God is reshaping and reforming you giving you all of the fullness of the life of one who's a follower of Christ, all that God intends for us. Verse 17, that last part into 18, Paul says it like this, 
everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new. All this is from God who reconciled us to Himself through Christ. There was a note in my Wesley study Bible reminding any who would read it that John Wesley in his notes on the New Testament wrote some commentary on this passage. One of the things he wrote is this. Only the power that makes a world can make a Christian. Only the power that makes a world can make a Christian. By the power of God's love communicated to us through Christ, we are recreated. Our dulled spiritual senses are reawakened. For then God, people, the whole creation, heaven, earth, and all therein appear in a new light, Wesley says. We can't keep this good news to ourselves, but must become ambassadors for Christ to the whole world. God is making His appeal through us. Paul wants us to hear God can and God does change people. The third part of Paul's theological answer after he says we can recognize God at work in our lives, is that God has given us the ministry of reconciliation. He says it in verse 18. He reiterates it in verse 19 like this. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting the message of reconciliation to us. Entrusting the message of reconciliation to us. That provides the theological foundation and the impetus for the group who were working on our core values to write our fifth core value. I've put it in your outline there in your bulletin. It reads like this. The Boston Avenue Church community nurtures our congregation to be ambassadors of reconciliation or ambassadors for reconciliation. Of course, that's where the real challenging part comes in. If we begin to hear this call of God to be about the ministry of reconciliation, we have to begin to look beyond ourselves. We have to begin to look at where the breaks have happened. Where is love and goodwill no longer active, maybe never was? Where is healing needed in our world? I mean, there are so many places where there's conflict, there's hatred, there's lack of hope, there's brokenness in so many different forms. This passage calls us to Look for those places that need someone who can bring love and hope and help and healing to people in the world. What are the places that you see where the work of reconciliation needs to happen? Where can you be a person that brings love and goodwill into a situation that is void of that? 
course, for Paul and his day, there's an argument or debate going on between Jews and Gentiles, but also between Jewish people who are following Christ and those who are not. But we could add lists of people in our world that tend to be pushed to the side, tend to be treated as if God doesn't care and so we don't have to be concerned, as if we can treat them without any dignity or respect or love. I think we could add Muslims to the list pretty easily to the Jews and Gentiles of Paul's day. I think we could add those who are incarcerated. So often we think that they no longer deserve God's love or they're no longer worthy of dignity and respect. Oh, the justice system may be giving them what's needed in that situation, but as Christians, what are we called to do in terms of offering them an opportunity for God to restore them to whom God created them to be? What is our role in love and compassion and concern and reconciliation but we probably could add native americans african americans hispanic americans any ethnic minority in our culture they tend to be treated so poorly they often are denied their civil rights they're often the victims of violence in our culture what might be our role and helping to build a bridge of love and goodwill and reconciliation. Of course, it's not only conflict between in-groups and other groups over here. Sometimes the conflict is within the church itself. Certainly we see that in Scripture. Almost every one of Paul's letters dealing with conflict in the early church where small groups of Christians can't seem to get along with each other. They seem to be arguing and fighting all the time. At least as Paul writes it, he's always counseling them to stop the quarreling, stop the hostility, work together, love one another. And maybe our day is not that different than Paul's. We're in the midst of a decade-long debate in the United Methodist Church over how we're going to treat people who identify themselves in the LGBTQ community? Are we going to include them as children of God or not? It's created lots of divisive debate, lots of conflict. In just 13 days, the bishops of the United Methodist Church have called together the General Conference, that is, people who have been elected delegates to represent United Methodists from around the world. They'll be meeting in St. Louis, Missouri, they're trying to decide, is there a way we can move forward together around this issue or not? The whole first day they're coming together, the bishops have declared it's a day of prayer. They're not going to talk about the petitions or any of the plans about how we might move forward. They'll be praying together. Your prayers are welcome. Your prayers are needed this has been an issue that we have not been able to come to any kind of consensus on for a long time within the United Methodist Church. And in 13 days, we're going to try again to be a part of the ministry of reconciliation, to bring hope and healing within our own church. 
I hope you'll add the church to your prayers these next few weeks. But of course, anytime we start talking about a controversial issue like that, emotions flare, people get worked up quickly. But it's not only around sexuality. It can happen any place. You can have emotions flare when you experience brokenness in your family or with a business partner or with a neighbor. A few years ago when I was living in a different city, the fella down the block a couple of doors and his neighbor got in a big fight. Oh my gosh, they ended up suing each other and going to court. They were in court battle for a couple of years. It was all over whether or not one fella's roof came too close to his neighbor's fence. It seemed ridiculous. And yet they spent years battling with each other and creating ill will in the neighborhood because they couldn't work that out. There was no spirit of reconciliation at work in that situation that I could see. Brokenness in relationships can happen in all kinds of places and for all kinds of reasons. I've invited Bishop Robert Snazy, one of our United Methodist bishops. He serves now the Rio Grande area for the United Methodist Church. He's written a book called The Five Practices of Fruitful Congregations. He actually wrote it first in 2007, but then he realized a couple of years ago that our church and culture has changed so much that he really needed to completely revise and update the book, and so he's done so. In the book, he talks about different practices within our life together that make us more fruitful, how we can be more faithful, how we can be more vital. But he tells one story I want to share with you this morning. He'll be here and share more of this second weekend in March. He'll be our Barton Clinton Gordy lecturer. But he tells this story about a guy named Reverend Cornelius Henderson. He said Reverend Henderson had this habit that anytime he went out to eat with other people, all the orders had been taken, he would stop the server. And he would say to them, Now listen, in a few moments or a little while, you're going to bring our food back to us. When you serve us, when you bring the food back, then we're going to have a prayer. And I just want you to know, if you have anything that you'd like for us to pray for, we'd be glad to include you in the prayer. He said, almost without exception, when he offered that to this server or that, that they almost always had a concern in their own life, about their own experience, or maybe about a parent or a child or a friend. He said they almost always asked to be included in the prayer. And he said so often when he began to leave the restaurant, the server would come across and grab a hold of his sleeve and say, how did you know that I needed prayer? Reverend Henderson later became Bishop Henderson. Bishop Snazy says about him, that he was a person that did not wait for someone to come to church before he was ready to share the love of God or the grace of God with them. He said he carried it with him wherever he went. He carried it with him wherever he went. Paul's call to us 
in this letter to the Corinthians is recognize that God is already at work everywhere. And then once you recognize it and see it, then join God because God has entrusted you and me with this ministry of reconciliation wherever we go. Now, Paul makes clear all this is from God. We don't do it alone, but with God's help, we can do this. We can be ambassadors for Christ and agent or ambassadors for reconciliation. Where is God calling you to carry the message of reconciliation? Where is God calling you to be an ambassador for Christ. We are not all alike. We do not all have the same social circle. We do not all have the same interest in varieties of things that are going on in our culture. But all of us, Paul says, are called by God to be a minister of reconciliation in our own sphere of influence. Where might that be for you? going through some old files the other day and I ran across this poem I had read years and years ago the paper was turning brown I'd slipped it in a file thinking I could use that in a sermon someday today's the day (laughs) it's entitled you and I you and I we meet as strangers each carrying a mystery within us I cannot say who you are. I may never know you completely. But I trust that you are a person in your own right. Possessed of a beauty and value that are the earth's richest treasures. So I make this promise to you. I will impose no identities upon you but will invite you to become yourself without shame or fear. I will hold open a space for you in the world and allow your right to fill it with an authentic vocation and purpose. For as long as your search takes, you have my loyalty. Amen. Thanks be to God.